Welcome back to Voices from the Front Lines, your national and now international movement-building show. Today we're going to spend uh, the whole hour with my friend Victor Grossman, uh, who was originally Stephen Wexler, who we'll tell you all about if you read the advanced uh, notice. Uh, Victor, are, are you on the phone with us now? Yes, I'm here, waiting. Okay, well, you keep waiting, my brother. You have a few more minutes, but I'm glad. Victor, okay. Victor's in Berlin, by the way. It's midnight in Berlin. And, That's uh, right. I, uh, luckily, I set my alarm clock. Otherwise, I'd have dozed off. <laughs> glad to have you, Victor. Uh, I, I have done the same. So let me tell you, let me set the stage a little bit of where we are, everybody. The first thing is you're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, and we're, we're in a fund drive. Now, the Strategy Center and Voices from the Front Lines and my partner Channing Martinez and I co-host, we're very lucky because we try to do the show pretty fundamentally the same way, but just ask you for money. Uh, it's really weird now because we're on some kind of an automated phone system. So when you call in 818-985-5735, back in the day, which is only about a month ago, You'd get a real person, you talk to them, and then I could run into the phone room and say, how's it going, how's it going? If it was slow, I would at least know it. And then if people called in, I could get excited, then they would send me little uh, things on the screen telling me who called. And if you raise money, one of the things you'll see, or anything in life, positive feedback leads to more positivity, which leads to more positive outcomes. So it's hard to raise money into uh, nothingness, basically. However, to my shock, when I got home, uh, I got the what's called the tote board, and to my surprise, we raised nine hundred seventy-five dollars, which means you raised nine hundred seventy-five dollars for the station. So I'm going to ask you to respond uh, karmically and cosmically and in any way possible. To let me know you're out there, because we don't even know until after the show whether you gave them money, okay? But you get that the station needs money, 818-985-5735. And before I get to Victor Grossman, just one more thing. Uh, you just heard the 
words of uh, Dr. Molina Abdullah and the Black Lives Matter. We're in a very difficult situation here in Los Angeles because we don't have Donald Trump here. We have Democratic Party liberals. They're not worse. I don't want to say they're worse. They're not. But they're difficult to work with because they think they're so liberal that they just think whatever you say, yeah, I'm going to work with you on it. So what's going on is why are these people setting up committees to study something? I just don't understand. You tell people that the police shot you and you say, yeah, yeah, I want to study this. When we say, would you cut the police by 50 percent? That's very simple. And we've discussed the police with you for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and the 30 years or more I've been in L.A., the only question has been cutting the police. So big props to our friend, Dr. Molina Abdullah, our friends at Black Lives Matter, uh, Stop L.A. Spying Coalition for keeping the pressure. And Mayor Garcetti, I'd ask you a favor. Could you do something? How about that? Just cut the police by 50% and come back with a proposal. There's nothing more to study. All right, now I'm going to read you the introduction to my friend Victor Grossman because, number one, I wrote it, and it's a, it, it gives you a pretty quick summary. But the book we're going to talk about today, or the life we're going to talk about today, is called A Socialist Defector by Harvard to Karl Marx. Do you say L.A.? How do you pronounce that? I'll call it L.A. until hear it otherwise. So, <laughs> yes. yeah. all right, yeah. so... There's a, here's what I say, an amazing conversation with an amazing man who's lived an amazing life and written two amazing books. In 1952, a communist, a Jew, and a U.S. soldier stationed in Germany, feeling imprisonment under the McCarran Act if he returned to the United States, decided to defect to East Germany. Not as the dancers or athletes from the Soviet Union, whose defection, orchestrated by the CIA, are made into front-page news in praise of U.S. imperialism, but simply as a man swimming across the Danube River to an uncertain future in a nation and a system he had only imagined. He lived, loved, and built East Germany from 1952 until its finest defeat by the capitalist West in 1990. And even now, 30 years later, after the so-called fall of the wall, he's able to discuss, dissect, and defend not without a critical eye, the German Democratic Republic, which I also defend, and not without a critical eye. One thing is important is that the German Democratic Republic was the anti-fascist Germany that was finally defeated by the fascist U.S. and West Germany. Grossman's brilliant exposure how, of how almost all the anti-fascists went to East Germany and almost all the German fascists went to West Germany, and the U.S. is almost too painful to read. I met Victor Grossman, born Stefan Stephen Wexler, through the introduction of my dear friend Victor Wallace, a longtime editor of Socialism and Democracy, who introduces me to a lot of great people. Now, when Leanne Hurst Mann and I were in Berlin as guests of the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation that invited her to speak, I was able to visit Victor Grossman in his modest but more than ample apartment in which he has lived for decades, now on Karl Marx Allee. Victor put out a monthly bulletin on Germany and the world that is brilliant. He's 92, goes for long walks, has a sharp mind and wit. I'm honored to know him. Now, he'd be up at midnight 
Berlin time so he can speak to Voices listeners, I strongly urge you to get his book, A Socialist Defector, from Harvard to Karl Marx LA. Thanks to the publication of Monthly Review Press, you can get it online. And very soon, I hope it'll, it will be in our Strategy and Soul bookstore because we're going to order copies and get it from us. Now, my main takeaway from reading the, his brilliant history is that East Germany, in my opinion, with only one-third of Germany territory and the least wealthy part of the nation, surrounded by the U.S., the West German economy, propped up by U.S. imperialism right after the war, at the same time it tried to destroy the Soviet Union. It really had no chance to breathe and was fortunate through its own courage the last 45 years. Now, as Victor will explain to you, as the U.S. now moves to war with China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, and any other country that simply wants to live in peace without U.S. intervention, we need to listen to Victor's dire warnings about U.S. plans to start another world war if, intend, if needed to destroy any semblance of opposition to its objectives. So, Victor Grossman, welcome to Voices from the Front Lines. Yes. Hello. Hello in Los Angeles and elsewhere. Now, Victor, when you first... uh, Tell us about swimming across the Danube. So why don't we start there? Okay. I, I did it because in 1951, when I got drafted... Uh, you had to sign a statement that you had never been in any one of about 120 organizations, most of them left-wing. And I had been in about a dozen of them. And, uh, however, in those days, according to the McCarran Law, if you, were, if you had to go to a police station to register as a foreign agent if you were in any of those organizations. Otherwise, you would be sent. You could be sentenced to up to five years for every day you didn't register. Now that means in one week it's thirty-five, uh, thirty-five years. In two weeks it's seventy years. The the law is already six months old. I was simply scared, and therefore I in, instead of admitting that I had been in these organizations, I lied and said that I had not been and hoped that in the two years of army service, if I kept my nose clean and my mouth shut, maybe nobody would check up and I could manage. But they did check up, and they found out they had been keeping their eye on me. The FBI had been keeping its eye on me, as I knew. And uh, they told me to, uh, they sent me a letter from the Pentagon telling me to report to the military judge the next Monday. Well, on Sunday, on, no, on Saturday, before that Monday, I decided uh, the penalty for, for having lied could be also up to five years and $10,000. I figured five years in military prison? No, no, not for me. And that's when I decided to take off, which I did. And the, the place which seemed clearest, safest to cross over, instead of wandering around at some border in the woods, and getting picked up there, I decided the river is a clear-cut boundary. I sort of hoped I might find a boat or something, but, or, or a rowboat or anything, but I didn't. So I just waded into the water, threw away my shoes and my jacket, and swam, and swam, and swam, and 
finally did get to the other side. Uh, I might say here that I sort of expected, that was the Iron Curtain in those days, I kind of expected to see, if not um, Soviet tanks, then at least soldiers with MPs waiting on guard. But the funny thing was, it was a Sunday morning early in August. I couldn't find anybody. <laughs> Either Soviets, not Austrians, nobody. It was Everybody was asleep still, I guess. It was a beautiful sunny day, and I could find nobody. So now, Victor, uh, this is uh, this is in Austria. I wandered around all. Uh, I wandered around for hours without shoes and with a torn shirt until I was picked up by Austrian cops, and I told them I want to go to the Soviets. I didn't trust them that they might send me back across the river. Then I'd really be in trouble. So I, I said I don't know German, although I had already learned some German, and was taken to the Soviets. Uh, so the Austrians. Uh, so you didn't directly go to uh, you. You swam to essentially Austria, not to Germany. Is that correct? Yeah, I couldn't get to East Germany because the Danube doesn't border it. I see. Uh, that's it's the Elbe which borders it, which divides it. No, I went just to the Soviet zone of Austria. Austria I was divided see. up Got it. in in four sectors, like Germany later. Okay, and, great. Uh, now, uh, I, Victor. Uh, so I landed in in the Soviet zone of Austria. All right. Now, when you got there, maybe you thought the Soviets going to go. Comrade Victor, we are so happy to hear you. We are welcoming you with open arms. But it was a little more complicated, right, Victor? Uh, what was more complicated? What happened then? Well, what I'm saying is you weren't exactly just welcomed by the Soviet police. Uh, so, well, the, the, the first man that spoke to me, an officer, he was friendly. He, was, he didn't quite know what to do with me. And so he sent me the next day by car with two officers to their main headquarters, uh, which was uh, near Vienna. Uh, it was about a few hours trip uh, in, in, a, in a civilian car. And in, when I got there, they said, I hope you won't mind staying here a little while. I said, no, I was glad that I was safe, you know, across right. the river. And, but they put me into a, a cell, which was a surprise to me. They put me into a cell in the cellar. And I was there for uh, two weeks. They were not unfriendly, but they obviously were still it was still trying to decide what to do with me. After two weeks, the off- uh, a group of officers came in. They brought a complete new set of clothes and, and all kinds of uh, everything I needed, including, for you, they said, a red tie. And they, <laughs> and they said, you'll be leaving here tomorrow. Well, it turned out it was the day after tomorrow. I got into a rather funny vehicle with, a, with five or six uh, soldiers and drove and drove and drove. And I didn't know where they were going to take me to what country in, in the east. It was going to, I, I didn't know. But actually, the main thing for me, I didn't want to spend five years in, in Leavenworth Penitentiary. And what happened is that they drove me to the place which I probably wanted least to go to, and that was East Germany or the German Democratic Republic, GDR. They took me there, and, uh, and that's where I landed, and that's where I stayed. All right, Victor, that's good. Hold it for a minute. So you're on KPFK. Now, where else are you going to hear a story like this? 818-985-5735. For those of you that even want to know that there was an East Germany, that want to know that there's still a 
Victor Grossman alive and well, Eric Mann talking to him. Uh, it's not just listener sponsor radio. It's anti-anti-communist radio or even pro-communist radio on, on this show that indicates there is an alternative to the U.S. If you believe in that, if you believe that you don't want to be part of the Cold War, call 818-985-5735 and contribute to KPFK, which you know really needs your help. The second thing is I'll repeat many times. Victor's book is called A Socialist Defector from Harvard to Karl Marx L.A., you can go online and find it. I urge you to get it. It's your choice. And eventually, as I said, it will be at the Strategy and Soul bookstore. So, Victor, let me ask you this question. Why was East Germany the last place you wanted to go in the East? It was because I had spent about nine months in West Germany before I left as a soldier. And I felt uncomfortable there for many reasons. The main reason was that I ran into so many people who were not, uh, who were perfectly willing to tell about their past during the war. In other words, they still had not overcome uh, uh, fascist ideas. Right. Uh, I won't say that was true of everybody, but, but uh, I, I didn't meet too many German people there as a soldier. But of those I did, there were too many, and the atmosphere was like that. And not only that, but I had heard in Stars and Stripes, the, the army newspaper, that those who deserted and went to East Germany, there were other Americans, that they were put in a special camp for deserters. And I was damned if I wanted to sit in a camp with a bunch of other deserters. That was the main reason I did not want to go to East Germany. Uh, Victor, were you also, as a Jew, concerned that since the vast majority of Germans did participate in one way or the other in the Nazi uh, Holocaust, and of course there were a certain number of very heroic people in the underground, were you worried that even in East Germany there would be a great deal of not just anti-Semitism, but active, active fascists? Were you worried about that? Not really, no. In fact, in, in, even in West Germany, I had run into people with, who had not learned about, they were against, uh, they were not, uh, I didn't run into anti-Semitism uh, in West Germany, uh, perhaps because people were smart enough to keep their mouths shut about it. And in East Germany, I did not expect it because I expected this to be a, a leftist uh communist-run country, which would bar any kind of anti-Semitism, as I, as I thought and hoped. So I did not really expect it. And I might add, I didn't find any, uh, or I should say almost none. I found I was, in all those years that I lived there, after it was 38 years, I would say that anti-Semitic remarks that I heard uh, could be counted on, on one hand. Uh, this doesn't mean that the people, some people didn't have it in their heads. But in East Germany, as opposed to West Germany, if people had such fascist ideas in their heads, they kept their mouths shut whenever they were out. Uh, maybe they, maybe in, in their families or in, in groups of friends. But otherwise, they kept their mouths shut because that was taboo. Anything... anything uh, pro-Nazi 
or anti-Semitic or, or racist was actually illegal. They could be punished for it. So that, that, that they were careful about that. And I, I did not run into it. Uh, I might mention here, some of your listeners may know about the, uh, the Rosenbergs who were, uh, who were sent to the electric chair for espionage, but that there was a lot of anti-Semitism involved because they were both Jewish. That's right. I remember being moved when I saw a big train move into the station where I was living there at the station, one of these big old elect, uh, uh, coal locomotives, black coal uh, locomotives, and painted in big white letters was Free the Rosenbergs. And I was moved by that because everybody knew that they were Jewish. And to see that in Germany, only seven, eight years after Hitler was uh, 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 died, really moved me greatly. Um, Jenny, can I just do one thing on the Rosenbergs and then go to your question? Or you want to do your question now? Uh, go, go. No, no, go, go. Yeah. So... I, first of all, thank you for being on the show, Victor, and this is really great history. Um, the part I want to back up on is sort of the timeline because I tend to get confused between that time of after World War II and the Cold War and this 1952 when you swam um, across the river. And so I'm wondering... If you, Eric, or if you, Victor, can talk a little bit more about that time of what was going on. So I That's know great. that the Nazis were defeated, but now I don't know exactly when the Cold War okay. sort of it's eased great. its way into that. Yeah. That's great. Victor, you, you start, and I'll, I also have a lot of thoughts about that. What Channing is asking correctly is how quickly after World War II did the so-called Cold War start? Basically... I think it started exactly 75 years ago when the bomb, two bombs fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. Because as we know now, they were partly aimed at ending the war quickly, but partly also aimed at telling the Soviet Union who's now got the power in his hands. It was basically the beginning. However, in the first Two years after 1945, in West Germany, uh, there were many good American officers who had fought in the war and who hated the Nazis and hated fascism. And uh, because they had experienced it, they had some of them had seen the concentration camps who had helped liberate them and seen what the Nazis had done themselves and fought. And they tried to get rid of many of the Nazis. But in the years, uh, started already in 45, but basically around 1947 right. is when uh, the United States decided that West Germany was too important economically. It had such a terrifically developed industry, even though it had been bombed. It was important economically, and it had lots and lots of uh, very experienced generals and colonels and other officers who had fought the Russians and had experience, and they did not want to do without these two elements, the economy and, these, and the experience. And therefore, they decided to tone down the anti, anti-Nazi uh, uh, ideas and to 
uh, and to let uh, let them uh, become new allies. And this meant that in West Germany, after 1947, about or 46, 47, you can't say a definite date. The uh, the top Nazis were, were done away with if they couldn't escape. They were some of them were hanged or, or but every other level up to the up to the second rank practically regained power in the in the about 1951-52 when almost all of the old uh, Nazis who had been imprisoned were amnestied. This was only in West Germany. In East Germany, as I found, the, the Nazis fearing the Russians that it wouldn't be so nice to them and fearing the communists who came in with the Russians and who had suffered under the Nazis, who had been killed off as they were the ones who were killed off more than any other group except the Jews and the, and the, and the gypsies. Right. But then came the communists who were uh, thousands and thousands were killed, many of them guillotined. The, the pro-Nazis just, uh, quickly went to West Germany. They didn't want to stay, almost all of them. Some of them who, who made the mistake and stayed got punished, but most of them left. Uh, and, and this, of course, created some problems, but I'll go into that if, when, when and if you ask. Well, let me add one thing, and then I'll, I'll, I'll do another show on it. I don't want to take a lot of Victor's time. Uh, I've done a lot of study as as Victor. Uh, uh, Victor, by the way, you and I just think beyond the article you wrote about defending the Soviet Union, I also wrote one. But here's a couple of quick thoughts. Number one, the United States has never been anti-fascist at the ruling class level. The United States didn't, was not particularly anxious to go to war against Nazi Germany. Uh, it was late to go to war against Nazi Germany. It only fought Nazi Germany when it saw it rising so strongly that it was very worried that it was going to take over all of capitalism. Still, the United States wanted, as did England and France, for Nazi Germany to invade the Soviet Union, which it did. So that means that World War II was mainly a fight between the Soviet Union on one hand and Nazi Germany on the other. When the Soviet Union won, and in Victor's book, you talk about 26 million Soviet people died in the fight against Nazi Germany. The United States, from the beginning saw the Soviet Union as the enemy. The United States did not see Nazis as the enemy. They just saw them as an obstacle. They had to get rid of the Soviet Union. As Victor said, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was definitely motivated to scare the hell out of the Soviet Union. So the Cold War, in my opinion, began, what Victor's saying, before World War II was over, the United States already was planned to go to war with the Soviet Union. By 1947, they passed the McCarran Act, they passed, uh, I mean, the Taft-Hartley Act, saying that communists could not be in the labor movement. And by 1951, it was a hysteria, including the Korean War. So there's a lot of history there, but the main point is, it's a good question, is that the United States was never anti-fascist. It fought against fascism because it had no choice. Now, one more thing, and you could tell me your interpretation, Victor. The communists inside the United States were anti-fascists. They went to World War II to fight fascism. The United States war went into World War II to defeat Germany and to take over Europe and to take on the Soviet Union. What do you think, Victor? I, I'm afraid I don't agree with you completely. Okay, good. That's why it's called a radio show. 
<laughs> I don't agree with you completely. No, I think that in every Western company, a country, there was a, a division of thinking. In uh, in England, an awful lot of people were anti-fascist during the 1930s, and even Churchill hated the fascists, uh, hated the Nazis. Right. The Nazi, uh, uh, Chamberlain, before him, was famous. He didn't. But Churchill was against the Nazis. Of course, he was also against the Soviets. But Roosevelt, I think, I would say, was really an anti-fascist, President Roosevelt. And I think he really was devoted to, to, to destroying fascism. I think it was a tragedy that he died in 1945, right at the end of the war. And an awful, not only communists, but a large number of Americans and a large number of, of uh, British, too. And uh, uh, we won't argue about how many, the percent, but also in, the other, in France and so forth, did hate the fascists. And it, uh, it was not so clear. Uh, it's true that in, before the World War II, uh, before 1939, it's true that uh, Britain and, and especially, but also France, had thought to push Hitler against the Soviets, and they would not have opposed Hitler. In fact, they would, have, right. they would have supported him. That's true. But once the war started, uh, and especially after 1941, they took anti-fascist positions, which were lasted among some of them until 1945, 46, 47, and with a few people even longer. But uh, in those first post-war years came the big change, and... Uh, under Truman, under President Truman. Exactly. And this is where everything turned anti-Soviet. The Nazis were beaten. Now the enemy is the Russians. And this, this is the terrible thing that has gone on for now for 70 years and is still continuing to see the Russians as a great enemy. But uh, I think it was a, a, a complicated situation then. And... Um, Victor, I'll give you the last word, Victor. Roosevelt, Roosevelt died. All right, I'll give you the last word on that. Now, in the eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five, if you like Victor Grossman, if you like Channing Martinez, if you like Eric Mann, if you like KPFK, please call in. Uh, the good thing here is we don't have to do a lot of fund appeal. It's a fund drive. We're mainly doing a show with Victor Grossman. It's now 12.30, Victor. You're doing great. The more you, you're getting all riled up, so I'm not worried you're going to fall asleep. So at 818-985-5735, please make a generous contribution to KPFK. Uh, Victor, a couple of things. Tell us about the, 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 the GDR social welfare state. One of the things I was struck by in your book is whether you were given an apartment, whether you were given whether the food was great or not great, whether the clothes were great or not great, whether the stipend was great or not great, they assumed that their job was to take care of every single person in the GDR. That is to say, you did walk into a socialist experiment. Is that true? Well, the, uh, actually, the decision to make at least this one little third of Germany uh, socialist 
was the decision was made just be about the time when I arrived there. Up until then, there were still hopes that perhaps a neutral, a Germany could be united as a neutral with no military. But by 1952, it was clear that the United States did not want unification of Germany and West Germany uh, under Adenauer didn't want it either. They wanted to build up a base against the East. And, and this meant that the GDR decided on socialism. And here I can say that, well, of course, when I got there in 52, seven years after the war, um, th- th- uh, things were, were tight. That means that there was no great, uh, no luxuries, and um, uh, th- things were scarce. But from the very beginning, first of all, there was always enough to eat. Second of all, enough to get uh, to, to put on your, you know, to buy clothes. Even though it, 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 you might not get the ones you like from the start. But I watched over the years, with every year. Things were getting better and better. And most important, what impressed me most of all, was that, for example, with housing, uh, I lived at first in a little one, uh, just a room. But when I got married, I could get, my, my wife and I got only one room and a, and a quarter subletting with a, a couple who didn't really want us there. And then when we had our first son, we got moved to a somewhat larger sublet, also with another woman uh, sharing it. What it meant was there was still not nearly enough housing, but nobody, everybody had to have a roof over their heads. You could not evict people. That was against the law. So that everybody had to be put up. And until there was enough housing, it meant people having to share, even if they didn't always like it. So, uh, but it meant that everybody uh, had a place to live. Everybody had a job. Nobody was afraid of losing their jobs. I worked for the, my first five months. I worked in a factory. The idea of be, people being afraid of being fired—you couldn't get fired. There was a <laughs> there was a, a manpower shortage anyway, partly because so many men had died or were still prisoners of war at that time. But. In, even in the later years, there was never a shortage of, la- uh, 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 there was always a shortage of man, uh, labor power, and it meant that working people could really have a, a stronger position in their job because they knew they could not be fired. And not only that, but if they wanted to, there were other, they, if they didn't like the job, there were wanted, uh, 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 labor wanted ads all over the place. You weren't supposed to change your job just for, for, for no main, major reason. But people did and knew that there were jobs every place. That was two of the main things that really impressed me greatly. And I might mention the third and fourth thing also. Which sure, please. So greatly, that you, from your pay, out of your monthly pay, by the way, we got, you got paid in cash, not in checks. Uh, every two, every, uh, um, which was it made a difference. He didn't have to go running around to get a check uh, cast as I did it when I worked in a factory in Buffalo. Uh, but when, uh, a certain tax was taken out of your uh, out of your um, uh, wages or salary, and this meant that all medical and dental uh, costs were completely covered, completely covered. Everything from getting your teeth fixed or looked at, getting a, a regular exam. Getting uh, getting a baby, uh, sure. it was everything was covered. You didn't pay anything. You didn't if you got 
you got um, when you went into a, a pharmacy, you put the prescription on the on the desk, and you got what you the, the medicine you needed for nothing. Uh, if you wanted to buy extras, for example, like uh, you like cough medicine or de- deodorant or something, you had to pay for that. But what the doctor prescribed was free. Not only that, you could be sent off to to get a so-called what they call a cure. That was a rehab. I got hepatitis. I was in the in the hospital for nine weeks, not paying a penny, and then they sent me for four weeks at rehab to a beautiful. Um, park-like area where I got mud packs and exercises, etc., to recuperate. And a year later, because there might be damage to my liver from this hepatitis, another four weeks in Czechoslovakia at a spa. So, that, but all for nothing, including transportation, and I got ninety percent of my pay during the four weeks. And the other fourth thing was college or education was completely covered. You didn't pay a cent extra. This meant from from the kindergarten or the nursery, if you wanted to put your child in a nursery, or kindergarten, school, up to college, and even postgraduate studies, not only didn't you pay anything, you got, uh, most students got uh, around 200 marks a month. Uh, Foreign students like me got 300. This covered uh, your your, uh, dormitory, completely your food uh, no well it it uh, it covered your expenses so that education up to the postgraduate level was not only free but you got enough to not an awful lot but enough to get through with there was no luxuries and, and you if you wanted to buy something extra you could work during the summer but not during your studies nobody worked while while being a student at college nobody did an extra job you just went to college not to any special work. Well, so, Victor, it's interesting because... These um, are things that impressed me. Well, impressed uh, us, I, I too. Impressed. Are you kidding? Uh, me and uh, Channing, you know, I mean, I just think about black people listening. I think about Latinos listening. I think about low-income people of any race listening. Uh, I think, well, no wonder we didn't like communism. I mean... I, I God, should mention this. Wait, Victor, let this me... Let, Victor, Victor, let me, let me say something, Okay. You are you were great. Should, Wait, Victor, uh, I want to finish something. Victor, can you hear me? Yeah, Alec, I should mention okay. that in all those 38 years that I was there, I never saw one single person sleeping in the streets. And not only that, but so-called these food pantries, you know, where free food is given out. We didn't even know the word for that. There was no such thing because nobody was stuck for basic food. You know, to you, what the problems were. There were many problems. I, I shouldn't give us a, 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 a glory picture because we had faced many problems. One problem: there was always a shortage of some damn thing. If it wasn't one thing, it was the other. If you couldn't get, if you could get mushrooms, you might not be able to get mayonnaise, or if you could get. Uh, you might not be able to get scissors when you wanted it or something like that. There was a joke which said to the, the man goes into a shop and, and the salesman says, I'm sorry, sir, this is the shop where you can't get sneakers. It's next door where you can't get T-shirts. <laughs> and, uh, there were always sure, and not only that, of course, there were other problems too. There were many political problems because the East Germany or the GDR was always under extreme pressure. 
It was a little country and a poor country. It had no natural resources. It was cut off from almost the rest of the world by West Germany. And so it faced constant problems. And that meant that uh, uh, West Germany was always out to, to wreck it with the help of the United States. To, to, uh, here I should mention the most important thing, I think. Victor, was, Victor, I need you to... Victor. Let me say a couple words, okay? You, yeah, you, I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. No, you did great. You did great. Just take a breath and I'll, I'll keep going because you're making a lot of good points. Uh, so several things. I mean, we're going to get to the political problems in a minute. So I think the first thing to understand, and, and Channing, you know, obviously, is that for those of us in the United States, you know, uh, I once read an article by E.H. Carr, and uh, he talked about uh, a great historian, and he said, I remember it must have been 15 or 16. He said, what could you do without the economic whip? That capitalism gets people to work through the economic whip. If you don't work, you get no money. That's why they can't give you uh, benefits. That's why they can't give you free housing because they demand it. Now, here was a socialist country that felt it was obligated, as he said, to take care of everybody, that... The food might have been great, but there was food for everybody. There was a, there was an assumption that you had a, a right to housing, you had a right to a job. I just want you to know that why the United States is so hateful towards communism and socialism and why, frankly, a lot of people in the United States are born into it is because the United States needs the whip. In other words, the entire capitalist system is based on that. And somehow the Soviet Union, at least, and... Uh, East Germany, were able to try and experiment where you didn't operate out of terror for economics. Channing, thoughts? You want to go? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm just reflecting on my own experience of attending Otis College of Art and Design. And as folks have seen on this show, I've had a love-hate uh, relationship. One time I'm speaking great about them, but other times I'm reflecting bad on them. And a lot of it does have to do with this whip. So it's really interesting to hear that you didn't have to worry about anything about except for going to school. Um, and it just makes me, I, I don't even know how to feel about it. <laughs> I think I've, that's a very exciting idea, you know, even just confronting my own like past issues of sometimes even having to walk miles to school because I couldn't afford the bus fare. Uh, I think being evicted twice while at college, uh, both times almost dropping out of college. And so, you know, attending school was almost sort of some survival test of can you even survive in a capitalist system despite all the crazy odds against you. Um, and lo and behold, I graduated. I have no idea how that happened. <laughs> well, by your own work, thank you. I mean, obviously, the no ideas, you, that's why you're Channing Martinez. It's very difficult. Victor, let me ask you a couple of questions. I mean, we know, just for a minute, we know about the enormous pressure on the Soviet Union, the enormous pressure on East Germany to never be allowed, you know, the West was piping in, as you told us, radio-free Europe, so-called. Look at you guys. All you have is low-income this, and you have bad shirts. Come on over here. We have great shirts. We have great food. Tell me, though, about the film The Lives of Others. You saw it, obviously. You lived in a country that did have a Stasi, as we do in the United States, by the way. We have the FBI, the CIA, and 
everything else. What was your understanding about the secret police there, about the Stasi? How did you deal with it? And how did you feel about the film, The Lives of Others? Yeah, well, first of all, yes, I did see the film, which was very well written and well uh, uh, produced and well acted, but otherwise a phony film, a, a very uh, very false film. Why? It's, it, it's all about Stasi, the state security, and it makes it seem as if that was the life of the GDR of East Germany. It, uh, it takes certain uh, problems, which I'll mention, and makes it seem as if that's the whole, that's the whole life. Most people who were not involved in opposition to the government didn't worry about the Stasi. They went about their everyday life like people in, in other places, in other countries, if they can. They went to work, they came home, they ate supper, they'd watch TV, they went to the theater, which was very, very cheap, or they went to the football, in other words, soccer games, and didn't worry about, uh, about Stasi. But when the GDR began... It threw out, by the way, according to the agreement among the great powers, United States included, all of the big war criminal companies were supposed to be uh, thrown out. In other words, the big companies, Krupp, the, the ones who made armaments, the uh, I won't name their names, but the big, well, I can name, for example, Bayer. Uh, yeah. Bayer is now perhaps the biggest chemical company in the world. That was a war criminal company which, which built up Auschwitz. And this, these companies were all thrown out, confiscated and thrown out of East Germany. They were supposed to be thrown out in West Germany too, but they weren't. And these companies, by the way, it was because they were thrown out that the money when people worked for a living, the money did not go to these big shots and billionaires it went to to pay for education and medicine and but these big companies they never gave up they wanted to take it back and they were very strong and they had many many connections in east germany the families were you know on both sides of the border it it meant that the, for all those years they were trying to break the, break and destroy the uh, East Germany and take back their wealth and their property and their factories and their and their big mansions and everything else. And this meant that the GDR w tried to protect itself from them That's and right. had to build up a secret service, which was in many ways like, uh, no different than the FBI in its general, uh, which knew everything about me when I was in the States as a leftist. They That's knew right. everything I said just about, I, I, uh, they, as I, I had proof later in Freedom of Information Act, 1,100 pages they had about me alone. Good. In any case, uh, but they didn't do it always in a very nice way. They were the people who led the GDR wanted a better future and a socialist future, but they had been hardened and toughened by their very uh, difficult fight against the Nazis. They were the ones who fought hardest against the Nazis, and that meant prison, camp, exile, underground fighting. And this made them very bitter and, and certain that they didn't want to have the, that country taken over again by those old bosses. And they never really quite understood how to talk properly with most of the people who were not so interested in politics, who saw that West Germany had many nicer commodities 
you know, fashionable and, and a much broader assortment of, of foods and fruits and, and, and everything else and was jealous of this and uh, was not so politically sure. What, what, they, they, liked to th- they got used to the fact that medis- medical care was free and that rent cost you only 10% of your income usually or less. They got used to that, especially the younger generation. They thought that's the way things are. And, but, uh, but they dreamed of having those beautiful uh, cars, those uh, VWs or even Mercedes or uh, BMWs, and so that there was a, had to, a constant fight to try and protect East Germany against being taken over again. And this fight was not always done with uh, kid gloves. And, uh, and therefore, things like you saw in that film it may well have happened. But they were not the, the, the average life for the average person who, who could uh, make, make jokes about the Stasi if he weren't somehow involved with taking down the GDR, uh, which is what happened in the end, by the way. Well, let me say this, Victor, because I think what you do is great. And uh, the first thing I want to be very clear what I think is that every government uh, every revolutionary government has to protect itself from being overthrown by the United States. Any revolutionary government that does not have some kind of a police force, an army, uh, a, an intelligence service looking out for spies, there are more spies that the United States admits that it sends spies into East Germany, that the West Germans sent spies in there. So the fact that they had a Stasi was, uh, I would defend that. How's that? Because, you see, you can't have socialist democracy if you can't even protect the sovereignty of your own experience. If there were less provocation, I mean, think about how the Cubans have lived and built a very decent society under the most unbearable circumstances of a U.S. invasion and have found a modicum of freedom. And then if they do develop any kind of police, people say, see, it's a dictatorship. So I think you did a great job with that. And also, is it true that uh, in the lives of others, the thing that they're trying to sneak out is a story about the GDR to West Germany, right, to De Spiegel. Isn't that true, that the good guy in the film is is the capitalist West? So um, before I let you answer that or, or allow you, I want to make sure we get two things done at 4.50. Uh, this is Eric Mann. You're on KPFK. Uh, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. If you're interested in the strategy and soul, Thursday night, Revolutionary Organizers Film Club, which will be streaming in a webinar that you have to register this 7 p.m. on Thursday, August 6th. The film is going to be called uh, Finally Got the News about the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Jenny, if they're not on our list, how do you register if you'd like to participate in it? You can go to, w- you can go to org, and it is the biggest thing on the front page. And if you'd like to, you can register and be part of our film club. We'll tell you about more of that in a minute. But it's an exciting place to be, and it's, it's an effort to build a political community around conversations like this. If there was a film, there should be a film called The Socialist Defector from Harvard to Karl Marx L.A. I urge you to get copies of Victor Grossman's book. 
uh, and to be lucky that we're listening to him. Uh, D'Angelo, how many? Oh, and, oh, I'm sorry. And we need you to contribute that to KPFK, 818-985-5735. Think about this. We barely went into Fund Drive today. It would be very cool of those people that realize what a gift it is to have someone like Victor Grossman on our show to tell the station thank you by calling 818-985-5735. Victor is in, in Berlin. It's now almost 1 o'clock in the morning, and he's obviously doing great. About five minutes left, D'Angelo, is that right? Okay, so Victor, okay. you have five minutes. What are some I, of the last points? Mention, what would you like yeah. to tell us in the last five minutes, Victor? Well, perhaps I should mention this. In the GDR, East Germany, of course, there were many pressures because the country was under pressure all the time. And this meant uh, uh, that uh, what you would call freedoms and democracy, there was, there was no, uh, the, the press wrote what it was supposed to. There was not a great variety. Of course, there's not that much variety in the press in the United States either. That's but right. The press was kept in line, and in general, there wasn't a great uh, disagreement when you voted. There was really only one slate. But what a lot of working people said after the GDR went down the drain, after it was beaten, it was defeated, not, not because it was worse than the West Germany, but because it was not as strong. It was much That's smaller true. and poorer from the start. But th- many working people said this uh, in a, a year or two after the Germany was united. They said in the old days in East Germany... If you were smart as a worker, if you were smart, you didn't say anything too bad about the top party leaders or the top government leaders. You, 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 just, you wouldn't talk against them so much. But with your foreman or your ma- the manager, you could say anything you damn wanted because he wouldn't fire you. Now they said today it's the other way around. Now, in, now that we're united Germany and it's capitalist again, now... You can say anything you want against the, the chancellor or the president. You, nobody is interested. But you damn well better not say anything against your foreman or your manager because you can right. lose your job. That's very this brilliant. A, That's right. This is an interesting comparison, which is worth thinking about. I think that if the GDR was well, had been wealthier and not under the pressure that it was in from the very start, it would have been much less repressive, much opener, much more of a thinking. But it was really poor and, and facing, facing such oppression. I think in the future, with a future's idea of, of socialism, it would be, say, in a country like the United States or today's Germany, it would be so rich and not under pressure. It could, it could have all the liberties you want and a good life and not an awful lot of billion, millions and billions going to a handful of big shots on the top. Now we know just a handful of them own half the world. That would be a big difference, and that's what I still believe in today after those years under a, a, an attempt to build a better world, and that's what the GDR was. Wow. That was great, Victor. I mean, you're a good union agitator. You know, if you were at a union meeting and you had three minutes, you nailed it. <laughs> you, you really did. Uh, I think you're an amazing I person, Victor. I really. I, I, I hope. I hope some of your listeners think the same. <laughs> well, uh, it doesn't matter because in, in in this in this thing, I'm the dictator, and if I say it's great. 
that everybody says it's great. That's how it works on this show. Isn't that right, listeners? Until they call in, they are very independent. 818-985-5735. But that's a really great exposure, exactly right. That, um, I mean, the thing I want people to understand is that the Soviet Union began in 1917. GDR began in 1945. The United States began in 1492 through the, the genocide of all the people here. It had no problems of destroying virtually everybody in its midst. So the so-called freedoms that we have are only on the bones of 15 million Africans and 100 million indigenous people. And the GDR never did that to anybody. Mm-hmm. The GDR fought against Hitler. And the United States was for Hitler, in my opinion. Victor, uh, Channing, you get the last word, and then Victor gets the last word. Two last words. Uh, no, that that was great. That was. Uh, I wouldn't say anything different. <laughs> all right, so Victor, then you get. Thank you so much for being on the show. You know, I, I wish. Thank you for inviting me. <clears throat> and uh, are you going to go for a walk tomorrow? And now I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you've been a pleasure, and. Uh, I mean, you're, you're an amazing contribution. Uh, we at the Strategy Center believe that the communist experience was overall and is overall a very positive thing in the world. And we as pro-communists are the first to understand the mistakes, the errors, the contradictions. Uh, but you're a pleasure and a treasure, Victor. And thank you so much for being on Voices from the Frontlines. Thanks again for inviting me. And greetings to all your listeners. All right. Thank you. All right, folks. 818-985-5735. Thank you, D'Angelo Jones. Thank you, Channing Martinez. The, the man is called Victor Grossman. The book is called A Socialist Defector. Go get it. We'll see you next Tuesday. All power to the people. And more, much more than this.